He is risen. It's, it's exciting today to be here to share God's Word with you on this Easter morning. Um, you might be thinking, looking at this, if you've been at Salem for a while, you're thinking, should we sing some more songs before we hear you? Isn't that how it's supposed to go? Uh, we're doing something different uh, here today. We're doing a flipped worship. Um, what we're going to do is we want to open up with some worship, then we want to spend time in God's Word, and we're going to close with the bulk of our worship. Because we want, to sell, we want to learn about God through His Word, and then we can worship Him rightly together as a group. All right, we're going to worship Him in music. We're going to worship Him by celebrating baptism. We're excited about this day. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. If you remember, we're going to continue our story, our series through uh, the book of Romans. Uh, I will be teaching this week and then next week. And then the two weeks after that, uh, Pastor Duane will be sharing in chapter 7. And then I'll come in and finish this out in chapter 8. We're in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Now, if you remember last time we spoke, I'm a teacher. So as we're reading through some things, I might stop and pause and go back and refer to a few items that we need to know of. All right? Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Paul writes very early on. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, Paul is building on what we learned about in in Romans chapter 5 at the end of that passage where we see that we have been declared righteous by our faith. It's not about work. It's not about activity. It's not about anything you do. It's not about church attendance, even on Easter. It has nothing to do with it. It's about what Christ has done for us. And he says, what shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Will you join me in prayer this morning? Our Father, we thank you for this great time. We thank you for this day, the Resurrection Sunday. Father, when we were here at Good Friday, we left very solemn, thinking about what your son did for us on the cross. But today we come back and we're excited. You could tell in our worship, we're pumped because we know what this day means. But Lord, I pray right now that 
you would draw our attention to maybe something we may have never thought about before. Yes, we're here to celebrate your resurrection, but we also need to see from this passage what your rising from the dead means for us. And yes, you have purchased our freedom, and the resurrection is proof of it, but your resurrection is also giving us some marching orders, and it says it here in this text. Lord, I pray if I say anything today that's my opinion, let it be forever forgotten, but let your word be what's remembered today. May it change us. Father, when we leave this place today, may everyone in this building, may none of them say, what a great service Salem performed. But may all of them say, what a great Jesus Salem celebrates. And we pray this in his wonderful name. Amen. Now, I want to kind of unpack this passage for you, if, you, if I can. Uh, at the very beginning, remember we said he's building on what we talked about in Romans 5, that we've been declared righteous by faith. I won't go too much into that sermon from two weeks ago, but remember, there's no good, there's no good people and bad people. You guys remember? There's just bad people and Jesus. We're not good people. We're bad people. And we've been declared righteous by faith. We're not made righteous until He returns. We've been declared righteous. Now, if we stop there, you might have had an objection. You might have walked out of here that week going, well, wait a minute. Since there's no good people and bad people, there's just bad people in Jesus, it's okay to be bad, right, Pastor Rick? None of you sent me that email, by the way. Thank you. Uh, I didn't see anything out there on that. But that argument actually is something that Paul actually kind of saw coming. And in this passage, we see Paul is telling us how to live a, a resurrected life. And at this very beginning of this passage, uh, we see here today, we see a possible concern or objection that some in Paul's day may have had to this gospel of grace that he proclaimed. And that objection here has to do with the fact, or this idea, that if you believe in the gospel, you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that you believe that he declared you righteous, then doesn't that give you kind of permission to keep on sinning? And, and Paul had a background as a Pharisee. He may have anticipated this question that could be thrown out by them. As a matter of fact, I, I think that's what he's dealing with here. I think there were some Pharisee buddies of Paul who were saying, well, wait a minute, Paul. If that's true, what you just said, well, what about this? And see, their idea would be that the gospel Paul preached is somehow wrong because it excuses sin. So, like, here's how they reason. If Jesus paid the penalty for sin, then what's to stop people from continuing in their sin? That's what, he's, that's what they're saying. See, their argument then is because of that, the gospel does not do anything to curb humanity's rampant sinful urges. And since that's true in their mind, you should avoid the gospel and come back to us Pharisees because we're all about good behavior. That was their argument. Stay with us. Don't go with Paul. Their idea was, what's the use of believing the gospel if it doesn't change your behavior? Now, we hear that and go, well, wait a minute, that's, that's not necessarily true, but if we, if we fire up the DeLorean and go back in time, did I lose anybody with that reference? I figured I, was, I wanted to check my audience here, okay? If we go back in time a little bit in church history, you know what we're going to find? We're going to find that there were some who actually held to that view. They're called the Nicolaitans, and they're in Revelation. Sometimes when we read that, that book, we might get to that point and say, who are these guys? The Nicolaitans were a group of people who kind of operated under that flawed theology 
Their mindset was that since Jesus paid the penalty for all sin, then sin should be permitted since it's been covered. They had the idea of it's like a blank check. Did I lose the younger group with that reference? You see, there used to be this thing called a check. You'd actually, okay, good, thank you. You could, it was like a blank check that you, you signed and then, or Jesus signed, handed it over to you, and you could just live your life and sin at the end, you fill in the, the, the total and you're good since Jesus covered it all. See, they had that view. And so the question becomes is, is this a legitimate concern? Is it really a concern with the gospel? Does the possibility that some could abuse the gospel of grace discredit the truth of it? That's what Paul is arguing. Paul responds to this objection, this opposition, with a very strong statement. All right? He uses a very strong statement against this. And in the Greek word, I won't, I won't have you know it today, but it's a very strong construction. And it shows the absurdity of the idea and the refusal to entertain it. He's, in the ESV, it reads it, by no means. But if you have a new King James, it uses the phrase, certainly not. The NASB says, may it never be. The Christian Standard Bible says, absolutely not. While the NLT says, of course not, but I think my favorite one is J.B. Phillips, his paraphrase that he wrote back in late, early on. When, when the passage is read, should we continue in sin that grace may abound, Phillips says, what a ghastly thought. I love that. What a ghastly thought. And I think that really unveils the passage. Paul is appalled at the idea that someone would abuse this overwhelming gift of grace and use it as a license for habitual sin and a sinful pattern of living. He's like, what a ghastly thought that is. And then for the rest of this passage, he, he explains why. And his response is that Christians have died to sin. Christians have died to sin. And that's what verses 2 through 11 that we read this morning are all about. Now, before we go any further this morning, I, I really need to be clear here, okay? Before we go any further, I want to make sure we understand something. It should not be overlooked that when Paul describes sin, he's describing it not only as something we do, but as a power over us. It's a power over us when he talks about sin. And because of that line of thinking, Paul is really shocked that some would insinuate that the grace we've been given could lead a believer to place themselves again willingly under sin's power. What a ghastly thought. Paul's reason for this is that believers have died to sin. You know, like, that's great, but, but really what does that mean? What does it mean? Now, he does not mean that our sin nature was removed at the cross or at our conversion or at our baptism right? I won't ask you to raise your hand and ask, how many of you somehow sinned on the way here today? But somebody, some people are making faces at me. How many of you guys drove here today? Then chances are you sinned on the way here. Just, I'm not a prophet, just saying, okay? You see, you remember from our study when we looked at Romans 5, 12 through 21 together, we are either in Adam or in Christ. And those of us who put our faith in Christ still possess our Adam, or I'm going to use a big word, Adamic nature is what that term is, our Adam nature. But for the sake of the time here, I'm going to go our in Adam nature. We still possess it. We still get there. 
You see, after we put our faith in there, we are still there. We're, there's no good people. There's no bad people. They're just bad people and Jesus. And we Christians are bad people that Jesus has declared to be righteous. We who put our faith in Christ, we were not made sinless. We've been declared to be righteous, and we await being made righteous at the coming of Christ. But what Paul means here is something a little more important. John Whitmer, in his commentary in Romans, describes it like this. Check it out. He says, death, whether physical or spiritual, means separation, but not extinction. Death to sin is separation from sin's power, not the extinction of sin. I like that. You see, you still have sin, but you've been separated from its power over you. And this separation over the power or from the power of sin is all because of Christ. That's what we're celebrating today. John MacArthur writes this, this is not a reference to a believer's ongoing daily struggle with sin, but a one-time event completed in the past. Because we are in Christ, He died in our place, we are counted dead with Him. You see, Paul's adamant here that believers are not under the power of sin anymore because of what Christ has done on the cross on our behalf. And that's what we're celebrating. You see, Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection put an end to the reign of our Adam nature over us. We no longer have to obey our sinful desires is what Paul's telling us. And he's done this before, remember? In Ephesians chapter 1, he tells us, or sorry, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, before Christ we were all dead in our sins and without hope. But God right? But God made us alive at the moment we believed that Jesus is who the Bible says He is and that He did what the Bible says He did. At that moment, we were made alive. And because of Christ, we have died to our old nature and have been raised to walk in a new way of life, a resurrected life that we had no possibility of living before. And that's really the point of this passage the resurrected life. And a lot of times we come for Easter and we just celebrate, we celebrate the resurrection. That's awesome. But we forget what it means to us. And that's what I want to do today. And I have to be honest with you, this has been a very difficult passage to study. People have been asking me this week, how you doing? And I have been honest with you. How you doing, Rick? I'm okay. Now, when they come up to me like, oh, is everything okay? Has Joe been giving you issues? I'm like, well, no. No. It's the kids. No, it's, no, no, no. Everything's great. Jill's great. The kids are great. School's great. Church is, is good. I'm kidding. Church is great. Then what is it? 
This is a tough passage. I have been convicted by this passage. And he has been unveiling things. And I'm like, Lord, should I hand this over to somebody else? This is tough. And that's what I want to look at today. How? How do we who are in Christ consider ourselves dead to sin? What does it look like to put sin to death? How can we who still have a sinful nature, and that's everybody in this room, how can we put this sinful nature to death? Well, Paul tells us in verses 6 through 7 that we know that our old nature is put to death in Christ. So Paul gives us an appeal. He says, do not let sin reign. You see, we're charged by Paul in this passage to not let sin reign in our lives. In other words, we're we're ordered to refuse to give in to our old, before Christ, in Adam way of life. He says, just don't give in. Now, let me state clearly, this is a gradual process that continues until Christ returns. We will never be or live perfect, sinless lives in this life. We're always going to struggle, or or a better word, we're always going to war with our in-Adam nature until Christ returns. But hear me here, hear this. That doesn't mean we're doomed to sin. You see, we're at war with it, but it doesn't mean we're doomed to it. Look at verses 12 through 14. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under the law, but under grace. You see, according to Paul, believers in Christ are now in a new position where there are no long, they are no longer under the dominion of our in-Adam nature. We're now at a new place. I mean, think about this for a moment. Paul is commanding the believers in this passage to refuse to obey our old nature. Now, catch this. If he's doing that, it must mean that we can. Did you catch that? If he's telling you, You've got to not let sin reign. That means you have a way to not let sin reign. It would be a horrible command to command them to do something, but you couldn't do it. He's saying you can do this. It must be possible to choose living against our sinful desires. Now, I want to suggest to you this morning that this choosing to live against our sinful urges is what is called commonly sanctification. If you've been in church long enough, you know that word. It's one of those great theological words. It's that that idea, that process through which the believer grows more and more like Jesus in their conduct. That's what it's talking about. This growth into Christ's likeness is the resurrected life that Paul is telling us to live. And this continues progressively until Jesus returns to make us like Him perfectly and permanently. Now, again, let me make sure you're understanding me. I'm not saying Christians can be perfect in this life. But what I am saying here is that even though perfect obedience is impossible, Christians are responsible to walk in a new, resurrected life. But how does this happen? It's a great command, 
Paul gave us, and Rick, you're, you're saying it, but how? How do we do this? How do we live this resurrected life? Now, I believe this passage today gives us three critical truths that we need to keep in mind in order to do this. All right? And I'm going to share them with you in, right now. First, from Romans 6, 6 through 7, we know that sin's power has been defeated. That we need to know that. We need to know it. We're like, well, yeah, we know it, Rick. Of course we know it. That's why we're here. Well, maybe we do. You see, again, in verses 6 through 7, Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So our new position in Christ places us in a completely new relationship to sin and to God. You see, we're no longer under the power of sin, meaning our obedience to our sinful nature is not a foregone or an unavoidable conclusion. We don't have to give in. Like I said earlier, we're not doomed to sin. And we no longer must act as though sin has ultimate power over us because in Christ, sin's power has been defeated. Now, I like like the way one author puts it. His name is Christopher Ashe. He paints this following picture about what it's like. It's going to be on the screen here. He says, before being joined to Christ, when I resisted sin, now this is before his salvation, when I resisted sin, I was like a prisoner who tries to escape over the prison wall before a sentence is paid. When sin, the jailer, catches up with me and tells me to come back into prison, I have no choice but to go because I'm guilty and the penalty is not paid. You you see what he says, before Christ, I I could try not to, but I always had to go back. Every time. I was under its authority. But when the Christian resists sin, he's like a prisoner who is released through the prison gate after serving a sentence. And when the jailer threatens him and tells him to return to prison, he need not go. And I love this last line. The only power that sin has over the Christian is the power of bluff. You don't have to give in anymore. Dear friends, sin has no power over those who've been placed in Christ's salvation. Now, now hang on. Knowing this truth is not enough to live the resurrected life. It's key, but it's not enough. And, And if I may borrow on Christopher Ashe's illustration... Simply knowing that sin has no power is like being told you've been set free from prison, yet for some reason you choose to remain on the cot in your cell. The doors are open and you're free. You know it has no power, but for some reason that cot's comfy to you. Now we would think of that as absurd, or Paul would say, what a ghastly thought. You've been set free. See, The knowledge that you're free is is not enough. You must choose to act on that knowledge. And there's where we see our second point today. We must determine to refrain from giving ourselves over to our in-Adam nature. And this is the tough one. This is really the tough one. Because as I studied this passage this week, I'm like, Paul, are you seriously saying this? I live in a world filled with people, and people can be the worst and you're telling me I need to love them? I don't know, Paul. You're telling me that I can choose to not lay onto my horn 
really loud when that person cuts me off on purpose. They did it on purpose. You know they did. They know I was in, in a hurry. Lord, Paul, you're telling me that what I can do is when that person gets on that very last part of the very last nerve, and I want to hit them with such great sarcastic wit that it would make Shakespeare proud, that I should hold that in? I don't know, Paul. Now, look at what Paul says in verse 12 through 14. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Now, I found out, and you know this already, as I'm wrestling with Paul this week on this passage, trying to find a way. I'm like, all right, Paul, let's see what you did. Let's see. Let's see what happened. I found out that this is a, an idea that Paul visits pretty frequently in his letters. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. In that passage, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So he's got that idea again. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. And then later on in this very book of Romans, in chapter 8, verse 13, Paul declares, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And it was in that passage, right there, that Paul just kind of turned the light on for me. He goes, you forgot this part. You see, I was wrestling all week going, Paul, do you know the people I deal with? God, do you know who I'm dealing with? I know you do, God, but did, did, did Paul know? And look at this passage. There's an important phrase, and that passage on the screen, that if you miss it, you miss the point. By the Spirit. He says, put these things to death, you live by the Spirit, putting them to death. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can put to death our sinful inclinations. It's not by your own good effort or your own might. How many of you have tried? How many of you have tried to listen to your mother? If you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. You ever tried that for like a day? How far did you get? My alarm went off. I was done. I was done. That alarm went off. And of course, the alarms, when your alarm goes off, I don't know about yours, mine is loud. It's obnoxious. And you're like, well, you said it that way. I know. I'm obnoxious. I'm loud. And I, I'm just telling you, it's something we struggle with. But if we can't do this by our own good effort. We can't do this by our own might. Because we have already seen in Romans that our good efforts are tainted with sin. It's only through the work of the Spirit that our growth into Christ's likeness occurs. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, we see this. Paul writes that in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You see, friends, that that, what it means is at the moment that we believe that Jesus is who He says He is, that He is the Christ, 
and that we believe He did what the Bible says He did, that He died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. At that moment, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God Himself takes residence within us to make us more like Jesus. That's what happens. And we see this in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, remember, through the Spirit. As we submit to Him, as He indwells us, the fruit that comes out is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. And furthermore, guys, the Holy Spirit's going to continue this work until Christ calls us home. We see this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the job of the Holy Spirit to make you holy. It's in His name. To make you more and more like Jesus until the day He returns. But that doesn't get you off the hook to live this resurrected life. You see, we've also got to play a part in this. Now, don't get me wrong. The Holy Spirit's going to do all the heavy lifting. But we have to do our part in this. You might be asking, what's our part? Well, the Holy Spirit's got a part, and we've got a part. It's got to be led by the Spirit, but we've got to put to death our old in-Adam nature, warring against these sinful habits in our lives. Let me try to do it in a different way. I've used this before, and you might have heard me say this before. Some of my students, I'm looking around the room, I've got some students here. Some of you guys are getting a little older as I'm looking out. I'm not. You guys are. I don't know what happened. But my students may remember this one. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God to make the child of God more like the Son of God. That's how this works. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God to make the child of God more like the Son of God. You see, the Word of God exposes our sin to us. As we spend time regularly in God's Word, growing in our knowledge of Him and His will for our lives, we will most certainly be confronted with our sinfulness. You ever had it happen? Mine was this. I've had it happen all the times, but this week, this is why it was tough. And when I would try to ignore it, He would put situations that would show me my sinfulness, ways I'm short with people, ways I'm, I mean, don't lose my temper, but I don't lose my temper. I just kind of have this face. Some of you guys know my tells. I'm just going to go, this, we're, we're church. Let's be, this is family. Even if you're a guest, welcome to the family. When you see me doing this. Now listen, I could have an itch. Don't get me, I could be mad. But man, that's, that's frustration. When it gets really bad is when I'm sitting in a chair and I lean in. You ever do that? You lean in on your knees. You just, I'm doing this. You know? Now, today, my hands are cold. Don't think I'm angry. I'm just, I haven't thought out since the Good Friday, or the uh, sunrise service, okay? But maybe you have that. Do you have one of those tells? Where you, if, if you were a different person, you'd snap, okay? Now, I feel like everybody's going to be judging me now. It's okay. We're family. You see, when this happens, when we spend time in God's Word, He's going to confront us with our sin. And when this happens, we're supposed to turn away from those sinful desires and pursue His righteous desires. Now, before we close out this morning, I want to suggest something that I feel is often overlooked in this discussion about the newness life or the resurrected life. You see, this resurrected life is not merely about 
avoiding sin. If it was, the Pharisees knew what to do, right? Remember, this, that whole conversation started with the Pharisees. If, if the gospel resurrected life was about avoiding sin, the Pharisees had it going on. But there's something more to it. And that is this last point. We must resolve to live our lives as one who has been placed in Christ. And you're like, well, wait a minute, what, what do you mean by that? What are, you, what are you saying, Rick? We have to resolve to live our life as though we've been placed in Christ. If I may read again verses 4, 11, and 13 from Romans, because they really show what's happening here. It says, we were buried therefore with him by, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might, too might walk in newness of life. So, he says, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Here it is. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, present yourself to God as one who has been brought back to life. Meaning that even though those of us who know Christ can still live in the dead world, in the dead, spiritually separated from God life. We know we have a new life in Christ, and we are resolved to put, to put sin to death when it is exposed in us or to us through the Word of God. But friends, we have also got to live out this new relationship, here it is, by thinking about ourselves in a new way. There's something about the way we think about ourselves that affects us, correct? Now, before you think I'm going to go into this kind of power of positive thinking, self-help kind of stuff, we have to understand that there's something biblical about a biblical, healthy understanding of yourself. You have been, you were dead to sin, but you are now alive to God in Christ. You were in Adam, you are now in Christ. You have been declared righteous. That's healthy. Guys, I think too many of us spend too much time beating ourselves up over stuff we can't change. And when we do that, we are unhelpful. We are not able to help. We beat ourselves up over stuff. Some of us are still beating ourselves up over stuff that happened before Christ, as if He didn't take care of that. And may I suggest that when we do that, we're treating the, cru the crucifixion like it didn't count all the way. And that's a shame. What a ghastly thought. We have to understand what Christ has done for us, but not only that, even those of us who after salvation, like many of us, who still sin in Adam, we've got to stop beating ourselves up over it. We've, we know forgiveness is given. We give, we, if we've offended somebody, we ask for forgiveness that person we offended, and then we forgive ourselves and move on. Jesus tells us to love our enemies, but can I tell you, my biggest enemy is me, and it's hard. I can love you. It's hard to love me when I'm wrong. We've got to let things go because Christ has declared us righteous and placed us in Christ, and He's given us new life. Let's live like it. Not living as though we can never sin, but living as though we are men and women and children who have new life, and we're not in the old life. What I'm advocating here is a plea for all of us who are in Christ 
to become what we already are before God, dead to sin and alive to God. What I'm urging all of us here today to do once we leave these doors is to go out and live a resurrected life. What does it mean? It means accepting the truth of this passage, that we're no longer dead in our sin. We're no longer doomed to obey our old Adam nature. It means embracing that we now stand before God justified, declared to be righteous. And it means living and operating out of that truth. Once again, Christopher Ashe helps us understand this when he writes this. He says, this teaching, I love this line. He says, this teaching is not entrusted to the care of the Christian. Rather, the Christian is entrusted to the care of this teaching. You get what he just did? He says, this, is, this teaching was not just given to the Christian. We should give ourselves over to this teaching. That we are new. And Christ sees us as new. The Father sees us as new we should see ourselves that way too. That is to say, the Christian hears and goes on hearing the declaration about God or of God about him in Christ, that he is justified, not condemned, that he has died to sin in Christ, that he is set free from slavery to sin. You see, he says, we hear what God says about us and receive it with a whole heart as true. This changes our behavior. You see, it's not about being a good, good person to get God's, ple- God's pleasure. It's about understanding how God has declared us based on His grace and living out of that and letting it change our behavior. It doesn't mean that we try to be good to get God's favor. We realize that God has put His favor on us, and that changes our behavior. I can tolerate things more when I understand what God tolerated with me. When I realize what I've been forgiven of, I can forgive others better. You know when I become a Christian brat? When I forget what Christ saved me from. Because when I be, that's when I become a Christian brat and I think, oh, I can't believe that person said that, he did that, she did that. If everybody would listen to me, the world would be a better place. But when I realize where I was and where I am now, The humility hits me, and I'm like, man, you know what? There but the grace of God go I. Let me love this person like somebody radically loved me. It changes my behavior. I want to end with this last quote. You know I'm an English guy, so I like quotes. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis speaks about this type of thinking. He has a chapter called Let's Pretend. And in it, He describes that children often will pretend to be adults. You guys remember doing that? Okay. Some of you guys know I still pretend to be a child. All right. Okay. Either way. He writes that children are always pretending to be grown-ups, playing soldiers, playing shop, but all the time they're hardening their muscles and sharpening their wits so that the pretending, the pretense of being a grown-up helps them to grow up. He then makes the parallel that the believer who begins to act as the Son of God would act changes also. He says this, when where we would naturally act unkind, we know Jesus would act in kindness, so we do likewise. Where we would naturally be motivated by selfish desires or self-interest, we know that Jesus would be selfless and humble, so we're the same, so we do the same. 
Where we would operate out of our natural in Adam state, we know that we who are in Christ choose to live out as He would. And then Lewis says this, he puts it this way, the, at that moment, when this becomes our habit, the Christ Himself, the Son of God who is man just like you and God just like His Father, is actually at your side and is already at that moment beginning to turn your pretending into reality. You see what Lewis is saying there? He's saying that as we choose to act as Jesus would, we pretend to be like Jesus, these Christ-like choices become more instinctive to us than our old natures. Our pretending becomes reality. The life of Jesus becomes our example and pattern for our life. Now, believers in Christ, while we can't be perfect, can imitate this faith. We can imitate His faith in the Father, love for others, His devotion to the mission of God. And here's what Lewis says. He concludes with this, the real Son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as Himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject His kind of life and thought, His zoe, into you. Friends, this is the resurrected life. Knowing that sin's power has been defeated in Christ, considering yourself dead to sin because of Christ, living in newness of life because of Christ's resurrection, Allowing the Holy Spirit to use Scripture to change us from the inside out. Choosing to let how God sees us in Christ define how we see ourselves and how we live each day. Mimicking the Son of God at every opportunity as we await to be made like Him at His return. This is the resurrected life, and beloved, it is a joyous life. We're liberated then from the fear that God is somehow displeased with us. We're confident in our identity in Christ as people declare to be righteous before God. And we're free from the anxiety of always having to please others. We're unshackled from our bondage of sin, acting as free men and women, following the example of Christ in every aspect of our lives. This is the resurrected life that Christ died to purchase for us. And that's what we should walk in. And brothers and sisters, as we prepare to worship, as we continue to join in worship, may I ask you that we worship the God who purchased our freedom and has set us free to live this resurrected life. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it's taught us today. Father, we know that you have declared us righteous before you. And now you've asked us to live a resurrected life. We are to live as free men and women from the bondage of sin, not letting sin reign over us, allowing the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. But Lord, help us to see that. I, I can't help but think there's many of us in this room who it's hard for us to see ourselves that way. We still see ourselves as worthy of condemnation and death. But Father, you made us alive through, our, through faith in your Son, Jesus, not on anything we've done, but what your Son has done for us. And we celebrate this resurrection knowing that we've been given new life. And just as Jesus died, we died to sin. And just as Jesus was raised, we can, raise, we can be raised to walk in this new way of life. Help us to see that as true. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. Father, where we need to confess sin to someone or, or to you, may we do that today. 
But Father, where we're still beating ourselves up over things that you've covered, Father, forgive us. Help us to walk in this resurrected life and mimic Jesus in everything we do. Because if we leave this building today imitators of Jesus and His interactions with people, I can't help but think that we'd reach this one the 1% of this county for Jesus. People would see differences in us. They would see that Jesus changes lives. Father, forgive us where we haven't done that. Forgive me where I've been so caught up in other things that have no value at all. But Lord, let my focus from this day forward be to live a resurrected life. Lord, I pray for my friends that you would change us from the inside out, make us more like Jesus every day as we await his return. We pray this in his great name. Amen. Let's stand and worship.